some of you men enjoyed <laughs> this weekend and uh, Pastor Charles and uh, joyfully come here this morning uh, for, yeah, okay. <laughs> I was just thinking what Pastor Ed said this morning, uh, he expects a good sermon. I told him four out of five isn't bad. <laughs> So for the rest of you, I'm sorry. Uh, you can watch the videos of the others later. <laughs> uh, what a joy it is to be in the Lord's house among God's people. I know Taku has probably heard over and over, where's Katie and the kids? Uh, we do appreciate seeing you too, brother. Yeah, most of uh, kind of. But where's Katie and the kids? So if you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Philippians. Uh, we've been working our way um, expositionally. It's a big, long, funny word, which means just verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. Uh, and I want to take a break this morning. Uh, really, out of chapter number three of Philippians, that phrase that I may know him has been stuck in my mind. Uh, knowing him uh, for several weeks been the forefront of my mind with the upcoming men's conference and just um, just many other things coming together, uh, Jeremiah 9 and other passages like that. And so we'll take a break from Hebrews this morning. And uh, plus, I won't be here Thanksgiving week, so give us a time to express a little rejoicing together uh, in the glorifying uh, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through Paul's words here. So I'm going to begin reading chapter number 3, verse number 1. We'll read through verse number 11 this morning. Philippians 3. Did I say Philippians? Okay, good. Well, I mean, any other third chapter is good too, but um, you might want to read along with me. Philippians 3, chapter number 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. I write the same things to you. It is not trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for dogs and look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who would mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Pray with me, would you? Father, we thank you for this morning. What a joy it is to sing praise to our Savior. And just thinking of Paul's words as he commands us here that we are to rejoice in the Lord and how we have 
done that even thus far this morning. Father, I pray that you would just work through your spirit, through me and in our hearts, work through your word and, and be glorified. And help us to, again, glory in Christ as we gather this morning under your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Philippians is an interesting book. It is one of five prison epistles given to us from the hand of Paul. Prison epistles because he was in prison when he wrote them. The uniqueness of this is that Paul writes to us, not as a man who is condemned to die, but one who is almost as if he's about to win a prize of some sort. Uh, not knowing the outcome of his trial, not knowing the outcome of his faith, he is, not a, he is not conquered by the circumstances that he is going through, but he is, he is displaying himself and his faith in God as one who has conquered and will conquer thus far. It's remarkable when you think about uh, being in prison and writing such a letter as these, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all of them showing his concern to continually promote, glorify, and edify the church in Jesus Christ. He gives us a little bit of the secret of that in his own thinking in verse number 19 through 22 in chapter 1. Look at that with me. We take from... Philippians, the letter which is given to us that Paul is uncertain. He doesn't have the full guarantee of his outcome, of his trial. He is pleaded to go to have his case be heard before Caesar uh, for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and being condemned by the Jews. And so off to Rome he goes. But, but in this, he shows us in verse number 19, he says, I know through your prayers and help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out to my, or for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. And notice he adds that last phrase, whether by life or by death. And really you see a man who has come to a place in his life, in his ministry, in his walk with Christ where facing the idea or the anticipation of death is, is nothing new to him. He's been beaten, he's been mistreated, he's been abused, he's suffered under great persecution. But he conveys the reality of how he can speak like this in verse number 21. For me to live is one. Christ. Whether he lives or whether he dies, whether he is released by Caesar and, and sent back out into the world to strengthen the churches, he says all of that summed up in one word, Christ. Uh, over, uh, over everything that he is, everything that he does, everything that he holds dear, every pursuit of his, he just says Christ. He doesn't define it for us. We like kind of stuff to find I think we, we want to, what do you mean by Christ but he doesn't tell us because his service his ministry his pursuit the promotion of the gospel all of it is is boiled down to this one person Jesus Christ and, and I think sometimes we think of service of God in the in the idea of four don't we we do this for Christ, we do this for the church, we do this for our brothers and sisters. But Paul reminds us, as well as that is, because he speaks about the benefit to the church later on, he's speaking in terms that it is also with Christ. 
So it isn't just for me to live as for Christ, as a servant of Christ, which is true. But he says, for me to live is summed up in Christ. My life is hidden in him, is what he tells the Colossian church. But he goes further to state that not only to live is in this fashion, as if he could sum up his whole theology in just one verse, and he says, to die is what? To gain. The man of God is perplexed between two great ideas. I can live and strengthen you and strengthen the church and further the gospel, or I can go to heaven and and, and receive the reward that is awaiting me. And he said, I'm perplexed. I don't know which one I want to choose. And so he brings this church down, and, and it's almost as you see his thought process coming through this, that he comes to a place of, I believe God's going to deliver me for your good and for your furtherance of joy. But not only does he... He, as he writes to this church who is not only um, communicating or giving to his necessities, his needs to take care of him, some monetary gift of some sort, and also wondering how he's doing, how's the apostle doing, how's the situation, what's the court, what's your lawyer saying, and all this stuff that they were curious of. He invites the church to live like he lives. To rejoice, to take joy in, to to express the fullness of what he has come to experience in this relationship with Jesus Christ. The letter itself is a, a letter of rejoicing and joy. You just see it all throughout the pages. Joy is only mentioned five times or joy seven times throughout the letter. And yet the tone of it, the tone of it is almost like he's gathering the church together to, to worship and rejoice and reflect in the goodness of God with me. Despite the outcome of his circumstances at the end of chapter number 2, if you'll look at that in the middle of chapter number 2, in verse number 17, verse 16, he says, speaking of this, holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain run in vain or labor in vain even if I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith I am glad and rejoice with you all and then he invites them in on this doesn't he He says likewise you also should be glad and rejoice with me here is a church no doubt mournful concerned overwhelmed with the reality of the circumstances Paul is going through And yet through the letter, he is pastoring them all along the way. All of what Christ is doing in the world and what he is doing in them through his circumstances and through his sufferings. And he comes to that great conclusion in verse number 18. I want you to rejoice. You ought to rejoice with me in this. By the time you get to chapter number 3, he begins to, to unveil for us how we can stand with such confidence and such Uh, such amazement in the glory of God and the fullness of what he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. And he gives it to us in in several different ways as we get to chapter number 3. He gives it to us in his concern for them as he reminds the church and, and really reminding you and I that there is a rejoicing, there is a glory which is in competition with another kind. You see that in his concern in the first few verses in chapter number three, he begins this with a command, finally, brothers. Now, like most preachers, when he says finally, it's not his last point and you're not going home. <laughs> He's got more to say. And we use that to justify our own poor habits, I think. 
But he begins this saying, finally, my brothers, he's coming to a conclusion of all that he has been said. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. He's commanding them to rejoice in the Lord. Not just feel the experience of joy or, or be overwhelmed with the joy of God. Give expression, uh, revel in God, rejoice in the Lord. There's several ways we do that. We do that through singing. We do that through prayer and praise and testifying of one another. And, and as we come together, we rejoice. We, our heart is swelled up. Now, we rejoice in a lot of things. But here he commands us that what we're to rejoice in is not your circumstances, not what you're going through, not what you used to rejoice in, as you'll see in just a moment, but rejoice in the Lord. Because there's always a place in the Lord to rejoice. There's there's never a moment in our life, no matter what we go through, that there is not a cause to rejoice in the Lord. And so so, uh, adamant he is with this command to the church here that he goes to chapter number 4, concluding this, running your race and pressing towards the mark. And he says in verse number 4 of chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And let me say it again, what? Rejoice in the Lord. After he commands them to rejoice in the Lord, he he tells us in verse number three, he gives kind of a character of the church or who we are in Christ. Verse number three, he says this, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and we put no confidence in the flesh. It's remarkable in his concern as he considers this, this com- competition of glory that verse number three really stood out to me as I was reading through this because we want to live and do all that we do for, uh, for the glory of God as the Bible teaches us. That we want to live a life where we're magnifying God and, and honor God with our lives. But, but here it's kind of a different idea. We're to glory in. This kind of boasting, the word could be translated boasting, were to, to boast, brag, be settled, take confidence in Christ. It is the effect of the heart, that thing which we run to when things are difficult, what we hold on to when life is, is going sideways, that kind of boasting which carries us when we have nothing else to carry us. He says all of this boasting ought to be in Christ Jesus. That should mark us as the people of God. We boast in the Lord. Not only worshiping God or the worshiping in the spirit of God, but we are glorying, we're boasting in Christ Jesus. And truly that's what the gospel does for us. Reminding us that we have nothing to boast in in our own works and our own merits. But the challenge he sees for the church here as far as the other churches that he has ministered to is that competition of, of the dogs in verse number 2. Now, this is probably a negative comment for John Foley. That's what he calls them, dogs. I can't help that. I'm just reading the ESV. But his concern is for those who would come along dogs or evil doers who promote the mutilation of the flesh. He's talking about circumcision. He's speaking about the Jewish people who would come along and be like, yeah, Jesus is awesome, but you still need to be circumcised. 
Well, Jesus is great. Yeah, believe the gospel if you want. He's, he's the Messiah. That's good, but you still need to follow the, the eating laws and all the other things like that. What they were doing is, and, and Paul's concern is, is they were putting confidence, they were boasting, they were glorying in the flesh. And his concern for the church is the same concern he had for the Galatians, the same concern we should have for any church is that at one point the church would leave its foundation for glory to glory in something else in another way we could say it, it's like the children of israel who left egypt but in the midst of that instead of glorying in the redemption of god they began longing for what they left behind in egypt so Paul here is saying that, that those who have come to know who God is, in the gospel, they put no confidence in the flesh. And there's plenty enough people who promote that kind of thing in our day. I was thinking of Jeremiah 9, actually really did a, a lot of spiritual ping pong battle in my mind and heart praying through where to go this morning. Whether Jeremiah 9 or here, because Jeremiah 9 un unveils this very thing for us and God after speaking judgment to the nation of Israel that he's called out to be his own people and all of the wickedness and the idolatry that they had gotten into and he's pronouncing that judgment is coming and and what he reveals in chapter number nine of Jeremiah is that that what man does is he lays hold of and he brags about the ways in which he will meet it securely God faces them by saying, if you're going to boast, if you're going to glory, why would you boast in glory in your power? And do not glory in your wisdom. And do not glory in your wealth. And that's what we do. We rest, we lean upon the flesh. We lean upon our own abilities, our own goodness. For those of you who are good people, and, and there really are good people in the world. I know it's hard to say that. Good, not in a theological sense, but, but kind of good in a, in, you know, somebody wouldn't mind being your neighbor. Sort of good. And yet, as we lean on those things, we receive the outcome of what we put our trust in. And Paul is simply telling the church here that this kind of glorying, this kind of confidence is, is misplaced. In fact, he goes on kind of a fool's errand as he gives a little testimony of his own life. Not only uh, speaking about the glorying uh, in the flesh, he lists several different ways in which that if you're going to take confidence, if you're going to rejoice in who you are and what you've done in life, he says, I, I tell you what, I've got more right to brag than anybody. Notice verse number four. Again, going back to this emphasis of confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence, a reason to trust, to lean, to, to put all your stock in, to, to think that this is, this is really something gain that you will receive from this. He says, if I have reason to boast in the flesh, if anyone does, I do. Notice as he begins to take us through his list in verse number five, seven ways in which he, he really just kind of boasts about who he is. And in that kind of unveiling not only who he is or, or really who he was, but what he was counting on. He said he was circumcised on the eighth day of the, the people of Israel. He was circumcised on the eighth day. 
brought under the law and obedience to the law. He was a Jew. He was nationally of the tribe of Israel, receiving the promises and the blessings as it goes on, the covenants and all those things that he mentions elsewhere. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And he could trace his lineage. You read as the uh, Nehemiah is, uh, and they're, they're restoring the temple, and they begin to look who's, who's in the books and who isn't. Who can trace their lineage? Who can't? And, and here the guy said, I, I'm all the way back to Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. If, if anyone has right to boast in their standing before God or their goodness or, or something to be proud of, he said, surely he can. He, he, was, never, he was never Hellenistic. His family spoke Hebrew in the home. They, they stick to their customs. They did what the Old Testament said to do. They, they didn't follow off into the, to the Greek ideologies and philosophies. As concerning the law, a Pharisee. Now, you know, this side of the New Testament, a Pharisee is a bad word, isn't it? You can say amen to that. But to a person who's really thinking about his credentials, living in the middle of the Bible days, a Pharisee. I mean, that, and Jesus saying, your righteousness has exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. The people were thinking, there's no way. There's no way I could be better than these guys. There's no way I could do more and, and follow harder and know more than the Pharisees. They were the pinnacle of the righteous, at least the religious group. And, he, and here Paul says of the law, he says he's a, a Pharisee to the righteousness of the law. He was blameless. So adamant he was for his religion and his standing before God and his zeal. He said he, he would stomp out anything he felt to be a heresy, persecuting the church, even the name of Jesus Christ. All of this is to say that he has come and lived in a place where he put his trust and his confidence in himself and not God. Now, you may not be Jewish, and you may not be a Hebrew, and of the tribe of Benjamin, and you may not be a zeal of persecuting the church and all the things he mentions here, and that sounds weird to you probably. But at the heart of it, it's still the same, isn't it? It's the very thing that we're born into. Putting our confidence in anything other than Jesus Christ, other than God and his provision for us. And, and all of it leads us to, to embrace and trust as far as we can carry ourselves. And isn't that an awful thought? Isn't that an awful thought? In fact, you see this being confronted with the reality of who he was and who he is now. And he says in verse number 7, But whatever I gain, I had counted as loss for the sake of Jesus Christ. And don't miss that. He's saying that what I had put my hope and confidence in, that, that, that was where it was at. It was in me. And, and we could go to the Old Testament. You can talk about idolatry. You can talk about the government. You can talk about whatever you want to in our day. That is the sum of human, uh, human's condition, the human condition. That is we put our trust in ourselves. And in some way in our mind, we justify that that will make us right before God. Paul comes to this glorious conclusion, whatever gain I have, 
And it is gain, isn't it? It is what we add up. It is what we consider something about ourselves. As we say, well, I'm a good person. I never really ran nobody over. As I was driving down the road, I pay my taxes or I do this or I do that. And so after all, I'm a good person. That is gain, isn't it? That's you sitting in your own confidence of your own works and deeds. And the Bible says that no flesh will be justified before God by the works of the law, by his own effort. And so you see this this transition, this transformation in Paul's life as he says in verse number 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You can see him with all of his stuff gathered together. I don't know if you've ever watched that show, Hoarders. Anybody have ever seen that? I've never seen it. I probably have been there once or twice. I don't know. I'm not so much, but I know people who are, right? And it's hard to get rid of stuff, isn't it? We just don't want to let it go. And Paul takes the sum of all of his stuff. And he says, all of it I've counted as loss. Not because he did not once count it gain, but because of what he now has found to be gain. Notice again, verse number 7, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. You see this kind of transition, his glory, his confidence, his boasting in his own flesh, in his own merit, in his own genealogy, in his own standing and pedigree, all that he was, all of that confidence, he considers to be lost for a different kind of confidence, a different kind of glory. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. Verse number 27, really the whole chapter is good. We'll just kind of conclude at the end of that. Verse 27. We'll go back to verse number 26. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. Remember what we said in Jeremiah as God comes to them. Why are you boasting in your wisdom and in your wealth and in, and in your power? He just simply tells the Corinthian church, maybe he read Jeremiah that day, and he says, uh, None of you, not many of you fit into that category anyway. And he says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He's not saying that no human being will not boast. What he's saying here is this this definite decree that no human being will brag in the presence of God and of his own merit, of his own success, of his own work, of his own righteousness, of his own goodness. He's already concluded in Romans that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all failed the mark and none of us can measure up to that. And, And God is so chosen in salvation and delivering us in Christ that there is no room for glorying in anything other than Jesus Christ. 
That's what he's concluding here, verse number 30. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Because you're so wise? Didn't say that, does it? Because you're one of the sharp ones? Because you're so noble? It's funny, we were doing a Q&A the, uh, yesterday, and everyone was telling them what their origin was. One was English, one was Scottish, the other guy was Scottish. He got to me, and I said, I, I'm unknown. I'm from my mom and dad, wherever they're from, you know. It's <laughs> the way we do things in the South, I guess. I'm not sure. He says, our glory doesn't rest in you. It's in what God has done. He says, God chose it this way. He's, he's done it this way that no human might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of God, because of His work, grace in our lives, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Verse 31, it says, so that... All of that to say this, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? You see, God is just simply in Christ inviting us to boast, but not in ourselves, not in our flesh, not in our merit, not what we can do, but to boast in God who graciously gives us all things through Jesus Christ. There's no other room to put our confidence. There's no other room to put our hope. It all rests in Jesus Christ. Back to Philippians 3. Reiterating what he said, not only did he count those things as loss, we might ask Paul, well, that's, that's tough, isn't it? You lost all your stuff. You lost your respect. You lost your place in the synagogue. You lost the admiration of those would-be disciples that was following you around because you're a Pharisee of Pharisees. You lost it all, Paul. Your own people hate you and you're in prison because of their, their anxiety and anger against you. And you know, sometimes we think of loss as a terrible thing, and it is, isn't it? You read grieving books, one of the ways you, you grieve is not just, not just in other things, but the loss, loss of position, loss of possession, loss of loved ones. And it's a terrible thing. And you think, Paul, how do you deal with that? Look at verse number 8. He says, I count everything as lost. In case you didn't get what he said in verse number 7, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. How do you consider the confidence that you had in the flesh? He said, it's garbage. Compared to the confidence and the comfort that is found in the knowledge of Christ, it's rubbish. Actually, the word in King James is dung, I think, for those of you who have one in front of you, and that's kind of what it means. You can figure that out on your own. I'm not going to elaborate on it. It's pretty clear, right? And he's saying, everything that I gloried in, everything that was dear to me, everything that was bold, every, everything that I had on my wall, all of it is nothing. And you don't see a man mourning the loss of those things. And he tells us the secrets found in what he's gained. The surpassing, the excellent, 
the high worth of knowing Christ. I mean, it's almost as if he's adding all this stuff up over here, and you're thinking, what are you going to do with all that? By a couple of storage buildings. And he says, no, this is nothing. It's, it's burned away compared to the exceeding glory, the exceeding worth and joy and substance that's found in knowing who Jesus Christ is. Jesus puts it in probably the most profound way that you can put it, in the, in the most visual way that you can put it, that what is the worth of the world if it was your possession to lose your soul? To put it in Paul's language, the worth of the world and all of its possessions is nothing compared to the worth of Christ and knowing Him, being found in Him. He, he's elaborating on that in verse number 9, not only knowing Him, this exceeding us of who He is, I count Him as, as rubbish that I may gain Christ. In verse number 9 he says, and to be found in Him. And that was his idea, Right? It's what he was resting on as he was thinking about boasting in the flesh, boasting in the Lord. It wasn't just so he could brag to Mike how good of a person he was. And you guys think, look how religious Paul is. I mean, we were circumcised way after, after we were converted. And and we're just kind of like half Jews. And he's a real deal. Not so we could worship Him or glory and all this other stuff. So that in all of this confidence, in all of this boasting in the flesh, is so that He might boast before God and have confidence before Him. That was what His boasting in the flesh was all about. And beloved, that's the very thing that it's all about in your life. And you may not think about standing before God and, and, and what all that entails, but in the reality of what you're holding on to, what you put your faith and trust in, that is the very thing that you'll meet God with. Paul comes to understand that all of this boasting is insufficient. And he says, verse number 9, I want to be found in him. It's almost like, where's Paul? Well, he's in prison, right? (laughs) No, look a little farther. Look a little harder. I'm found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. And why is that important? Church, you know the answer to that, don't you? Because there is no righteousness that comes from the law. He says, I don't want to be found pursuing my own righteousness that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse number 9, he says, I boast in Christ because of the glorious gift that he gives me. Righteous, forgiven. What a joy that is. Why would we boast anything else? Why would we boast of our own goodness? God, by grace, offers to us perfection. By grace, it's a gift. As he says in Ephesians chapter number 2, doesn't he? And he says, it is a gift of God. Not what you've done, not works of the law. Freely given to us. But it is found by faith in Christ. The worth of what I can do. Compared to the the wealth of what God can give me. And that's what he's comparing to these two. And he's he's trying to help them. To stable them. And in all of the chaos. How do you face life? And can say that to live is Christ. And to die is gain. Well it begins here by finding that gift of righteousness. That depends on God. And faith in him. 
righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. It begins verse number 10 with that great statement. I think the NIV states it this way. I want to know Christ. The ESV and most of the other translations uh, state it as it's written in front of me, maybe not in front of you, that I may know him. I think the NIV has captured captured the tone of that statement, that great desire to, to know him. And can I just say that that is the description of eternal life from the lips of Jesus himself, isn't it? John 17, let me just read that for you. As he begins to pray for his people in John 17, he says, When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. First Corinthians elaborates on that. Chapter number 1, verse number 9. It reminds us, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be in Christ? He says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And just to remind you again in Ephesians chapter number 2. Why don't you just look at those verses with me? Ephesians chapter number 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you walked according to the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air and the spirit that is now work and disobedience. And the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. That's a pretty grim picture, isn't it? And it would even be worse if that was where God stopped. But he goes on in verse number four, but God, <laughs> being rich in mercy. You know, I, I have, um, I, I find it interesting how my kids ask for money. You know, sometimes when they were littler, one of them would ask just for the right amount because he figured, you know, if he could just get the right amount, that would be enough. And I have the other one, another one that would, you know, they shoot for the stars, you know. If you're going to ask, might as well go all out. If they needed five, you could do a 20 or something like that, you know. Here he says, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sin, in that state of being, it is God who made us alive together with Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, the kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Again, verse number 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not of your own doing. It is what? Paul's expression here in Philippians 3, 10, that, that desire to declaration of that I may know him 
that drove his life and has drove many people's lives since then, that, that underlying urge to know the Redeemer who has redeemed us and who has given to us this righteousness, even as we put all this together, reminds us that that in itself is a gift of God. And some of you can remember that your greatest ambition in life was not to know God, not to know Christ. Maybe it was found in the pursuit of something other than in the opposite direction. Yet God, rich in his mercy, stepped into your life to redeem you. And Paul says that I may know him. Not just facts about him. Not just an idea and statements. But that he may, he may relationally, he may intimately know who Christ is. That he may experientially know who Christ is. This is an invitation to all who would come to know who God is. We know him through knowing who Christ is. And, and as you bring all of this together in this glorying, this rejoicing in the Lord and this glorying which we do in Christ Jesus is summed up in this continual growing relationship of who God is and who our Savior is. Notice he says that we may know him and the power of his resurrection. And that really is the transformed life, isn't it? Forgiveness, deliverance our sanctification, and that we may know him through suffering. Well, there's much more could be said about that, beloved. But as we come to remind ourselves of this, that, that Paul has invited us to, he's invited us to be reminded that as we come together in worship, not just here as a church, we come to worship in spirit, and we come for the sake of glorying in Christ Jesus. But it's more than just our worship. Is as we live this life, we are constantly brought back and the trials which we face, the turmoil which is all around us, brings us and kind of sifts for us that, that reality of what we put our trust in and who we are trusting. And Paul would just simply say to all of you, just as I'm doing, beloved, be imitators of me. Verse number 17. So I invite you, as Paul has invited us, to, to glory in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord, beloved. Rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for, thank you for the reminder that it isn't, it isn't rest on me nor any person in here. It rests on Christ and what he has done for us. And Lord, we just pray that as we've just looked at this familiar passage of Scripture, that it would be a case of encouragement to us. Take time today as we go about our day and prepare our hearts for communion tonight as we again consider what Jesus has done for us in the gospel. And Lord, I, I pray even in a place like this and those that's come out on a Sunday morning, surely... There may even be some here this morning that are resting on their own merits. They're resting in their own flesh. God, they're outside of Christ. And I just pray that you would just work in their hearts and their lives. And, Father, help them see the excellency and found in him who died for us. And we'll give you the glory for that in Jesus' name. Amen.